You're listening to Frankly Speaking, weekly primary care insights for your practice, brought to you by PrimeMed. Is 120 the new 140 in hypertension? This is Frank Domino, and we're going to be discussing systolic hypertension today. I have an 82-year-old patient who comes in for follow-up of their high blood pressure. His BP today is 145 over 82, and he's on amlodipine and hydrochlorothiazide. New data exists that says maybe this is not good control. Joining me today to discuss this issue is Dr. Robert Baldor. Welcome to the show, Bob. Frank, pleased to be here. And I know this is frankly speaking, and we're going to get an opportunity to hear from you today. I know this is something that you've uh, looked at, so I'm uh, uh, thrilled to be able to, to interview you today for our uh, for, 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 for the show. Um, so you did get at that. I, uh, starting out with the idea of, of hypertension, and I thought I had this was easy at one point, like most things in medicine. 140 over 90, hypertension, and uh, shoot to get below that, we're good. And and, and over the years, we've been back and forth. How low do you go? Or maybe we could be a little higher as well. So um, there's been a lot of, and, and the original focus had been, all been on diastolic hypertension. Now we're hearing more and more about systolic hypertension. So, so Frank, what is systolic hypertension? Well, um, back in the, in the late 90s, the, uh, uh, we recognized some data around uh, senior citizens had different risk factors and benefits from treating hypertension. And one of the issues came to light was that if they had systolic hypertension after age 65, that ended up having a better correlation with uh, outcomes, uh, adverse outcomes than diastolic. Diastolic's more significant under the age of 65. Over 65, it looks like systolic is important. So now the next step was what's hypertension or what's systolic hypertension? And traditionally, we did describe systolic hypertension as anything greater than 140 millimeters of mercury. Then uh, that was based upon the JNC7 guidelines. That 10 years after they were published, JNC8, the Joint National Committee on Hypertension, was published a few years ago and they said, you know, the data around uh, diagnosis, diagnosis of systolic hypertension and its best treatment looks like 150 is the new cutoff. While so, this, so, this, so this may have been why it took them 10 years to come out with it yes. because they're coming out with, I would say, a controversial statement where for years they're being saying, you got to go lower, and they're saying, no, no, maybe we could stay higher. Well, and this is really interesting because JNCA, most of the authors agreed on all of their recommendations, and they came up with some really interesting ones, but there was dissent on this one recommendation of raising the systolic cutoff to 150 hmm. amongst the committee, and it led to a whole new set of investigations to occur. So systolic hypertension since JNC8 is described as systolic blood pressure over 150. That's the cutoff to initiate treatment and uh, titrate towards less than 150. Okay, so that's what they were sort of saying. And, and uh, so as, as we look at this then, there's been some recent data out there that has, so you said there was a lot of controversy around this. So then there's been more data that's come out to sort of say we should be going lower. I think the sprint data was part of that. Now this recent uh, review that came out. So how does all, where, where are we at today? All right, well, today we're, we're maybe a little bit closer to understanding systolic hypertension, but I say that controversy still exists. A recent systematic review look to determine what's the best data on the diagnosis and management of systolic hypertension. And, and the authors went very aggressively in setting up a broad scope 
to identify randomized controlled trials in humans that evaluated the diagnosis and management of systolic hypertension. So this is a randomized controlled trial? No, this was a systematic review. Oh, systematic review. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. Um, and what they found was when they, when they narrowed it down, they narrowed it down to four papers, which seems surprising to me because there's so much in the medical literature on systolic hypertension. And they chose four papers and, and they concluded, this paper found that aggressive treatment of systolic hypertension led to improvement in a number of areas. The first was in um, major adverse cardiac events. They found a relative risk reduction of 29% when you were aggressively treating hypertension. There's also a decrease in cardiovascular mortality of 33%. Um, that sounds terrific. They also found that there were some adverse events, but really the only one they found statistically significant was a doubling in the risk of developing renal failure by aggressive treatment of systolic hypertension. These things sort of surprised me because it was somewhat inconsistent with many of the other uh, publications and much of the European data. So I, I dug into this paper and I found maybe there were a few issues that we should recognize. First of all, there were four trials. Three of the four had different age cutoffs for inclusion. The SPRINT senior trial used a titration goal of 120 or less, which none of the other trials used. Uh, and they used a very, very organized but unrealistic uh, approach to the evaluation of blood pressure. They had patients come in, sit for five minutes, they use an automated cuff, when they aggressively treated hypertension, they used a multidisciplinary team to work with the patient to aggressively lower the blood pressure. And, and none of those patients could have diabetes as well. I think that was my, one of the other concerns that, that came out. That was very true, is right. that, that, that these patients, uh, di diabetes was an exclusion factor. In two of the studies, they were done in non-U.S. populations. One was done in Japan and one was done in China. So there were a number of factors that I felt like, wow, this doesn't necessarily make sense to me. So it's a great paper. It's a very interesting systematic review. Um, they reported relative risk reductions in their abstract and in the paper, but they didn't necessarily report the absolute risks in a clear way. So, so I'll just stop you just for a minute. So this is a systematic review, but there was only four studies that were included in the systematic review. So that troubles me. That doesn't sound like much of a review. And I think you're right. I think they're, they're, they had very stringent but clear guidelines about what they would accept and what they would not, yet they seem to discount a variety of other randomized controlled trials that seemed to, that probably would have maybe shifted some of this data a bit. Okay. So. All right. And you also just mentioned the word relative risk reduction. And, and, and to me, that's always an interesting statistic to look at. I've been aware of the fact that it seems to uh, exaggerate uh, benefits, perhaps. Uh, can you, and you said it didn't calculate an absolute risk reduction. Can you say more about that for folks that may not be uh, clued into what those numbers mean? Well, as you know, Bob, we're, we're here in central Massachusetts and it's winter. And I, I got yes, my. Yes, it is. Uh, we, it's cold, I, it's snowy. It's cold and snowy. I, I got in my car last week and my car is a thermometer and when I started the car up it was four degrees and I drove to work worked all day and on the way home I noticed that it had gone up to eight degrees um, that would be considered a relative risk increase of a hundred percent so it was a heck of a lot warmer then right it, you should be incredibly warm but the reality of the matter is there's no clinical difference between four and eight degrees 
despite there being a relative increase of 100%. Relative risk reductions are very interesting. They make great media publicity uh, uh, fodder, but they don't necessarily tell us the reality of the matter. And if you dive in and look at the absolute risk of outcomes in a variety of places, you can get a fair amount more indication of how important this is to you and your patients and you can calculate what we like to think about are the statistics numbers needed to treat an arm. And that's the number of people you would need to treat over the time period of the study to get one person to get a benefit. And if we look at cardiovascular mortality, it turns out that the absolute risk of a benefit of aggressive treatment of systolic hypertension led to a cardiovascular mortality of 1.1% versus in the non-aggressive group it was 1.7%. That means you had to treat 167 people for three years aggressively to treat their hypertension to prevent one cardiovascular mortality event. Interestingly, the authors did not include the absolute data on adverse outcomes, including renal failure. They just reported the relative risk doubling. So. We have no idea how to calculate the number needed to harm, which is the only way you can balance an intervention on its, uh, on its outcomes. So I just want to slow you up just a bit here. So I think relative risk reduction is what we're used to seeing uh, being uh, put out there as uh, so 30 percent. So, so in this case, you're saying a 30 percent relative risk reduction really translates into, uh, I think it was about a half a percent absolute risk reduction in, 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 in looking at, uh, at that aspect of it. But the other thing we were, I mean, but the p-value was pretty significant with these. Uh, what, what, how do, why is that, how does the p-value uh, fit into this? Well, that just means that they were able to measure the numbers accurately. That doesn't mean that there was any necessarily any patient benefit to doing the study. Uh, there, there was a benefit, there absolutely was, but the benefit was relatively small, and we have no idea how to correlate that with the adverse events that, that happened. Okay, and so, so obviously this is looking at a randomized controlled trial. Trying to bring something like this into clinical practice can be dealing with the adverse events. Oftentimes patients will stop taking medications or going along with that. Was there also, and I also I think I remember from the SPRINT trial, in order to get that degree of lowering of blood pressure, you had to be like on three medications. Yeah. And so, so that then also uh, adds to a level of complexity in caring for these patients. Was that spoken to at all in this in this review? There, it was not, Bob. It, it, it did, yes, there was data that showed you had to often use more than two meds, sometimes up to four. And as we both know, there are very few randomized controlled trials where three medications are involved and there are virtually no randomized controlled trials where four medications are involved. What shocks me the most about this study was that there was no reporting of uh, dizziness, syncope, falls, hip fractures in this very at-risk population. To me, in my clinical practice, I find when I get very aggressive with blood pressure management, patients are symptomatic. Whether they have trouble when they, they develop orthostatic symptoms to true fall. So. Um, when I look at the benefit of aggressive blood pressure lowering versus, uh, in my experience, the adverse risk 
that I'd be uh, causing, I think I feel pretty comfortable using a cutoff as JNC8 said. If you can get their systolic pressure below 150, we know that that causes a certain significant uh, benefit to our patients. It lowers the risk of stroke, it lowers the risk of cardiovascular mortality, it lowers the risk of all-cause mortality with only a small increase in adverse event rates. I think this paper helps shed some new light on systolic hypertension, but I don't think it is a practice changer. Thanks, Frank. So, so you're saying the bottom line here right now is, is, is follow the JNC-8 guidelines, their recommendation. It still makes sense. Those are valid recommendations uh, to guide your, your, your day-to-day clinical care. Consider these new papers that are, that are coming through, these new reflections. But for right now, you're probably not changing your practice. You're following JNC-8. Is that what you're saying? That's true. I, I will tell you that when you're aggressively treating systolic hypertension, whether you follow JNC-8 or the new guidelines, uh, I remind us all that seniors in particular uh, have tenuous uh, renal function. So if you're going to add a third or a fourth agent uh, a week to two weeks later, I would follow a creatinine and electrolytes because it's very easy to induce hyponatremia or hypokalemia or uh, a mild bump in creatinine. And I, I remind everyone that if your creatinine is one and it becomes two, that implies a 50% reduction in kidney function. And I think we, we sometimes think, oh, it's not too far away from the normal range. Well, if your creatinine doubles, you've lost a kidney. You, your risks for adverse events go way up. So follow JNC8, titrate down uh, to at least below 150, and um, provide close follow-up on your seniors. Uh, and until there's further data, I think that's the best way to go. Thank you, Frank. That's really helpful because I've been puzzled as to what to do and, and feeling myself that I was going to follow JNC8. So it's nice to, to have that reflection as well. Thank you, Bob. Thank you very much for listening. Hopefully this was helpful for you today. And I'm uh, thrilled to be able to uh, interview Dr. Domino as opposed to being interviewed by him. Take care. Thank you for listening today to this discussion of systolic hypertension in the elderly. If you'd like to review this article, please search for the Journal of the American College of Cardiology 2017. Join us next time where we'll be discussing the controversy around the diagnosis and management of concussion in the outpatient setting.